Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning. How are how is everybody doing? Awesome. My name is Tim Romero. I'm the senior pastor here at Calvary. Glad to have you this morning. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts chapter 20, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, we find ourselves in the 20th chapter looking at verses 17 through 38 with a message entitled, Six Characteristics of Finishing Well. Six Characteristics of Finishing Well. Stand with me once you're there. We'll read our text together, a portion of it anyhow. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the uh, gospel of the grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we are grateful to be in your house. We long to hear from you, Lord. Will you speak to us? We ask you, Lord, that as we consider these characteristics, that we would weigh our lives against your word this morning. And if we would be found wanting, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, direct us in the things that we might do to become the people that you've called us to be. And so, Lord, we just humble ourselves before you. We surrender to your will in our lives, and we ask you to speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar, an epitaph is a phrase or words that are written on a tombstone in memory of a person who's died. Uh, They often serve as a synopsis of a person's life. Some read as a resume. Uh, listing accomplishments and such. Others are more on the humorous side. Here's a few that I found online. Uh, These are real, by the way. The epitaph of Jonathan Blake reads, Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. So there you have it. Butch Pattengale really appreciated this one. Here lays Butch. He was quick on the trigger, but slow on the draw. Anna Wallace, the children of Israel wanted bread, but the Lord sent them manna. Old clerk Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him Anna. (laughs) And here's our final one for this morning. Harry Etzel Smith looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on the way down. It was. So there you have it. These are all on the humorous side, kind of. But reality is, listen, someone someday will have to write your epitaph. Someone will be responsible for taking your life and writing a statement about who you are, if that's what they choose to do. If you decide to have a tombstone, 
The big question is, what could they write about your life? What is it that they would say? We're not looking for people to say nice things about us. We're looking for people to say true things about us. I think what they will say and what they could say will largely depend on how you finish your race. Most oftentimes, people don't remember how you began your race. People don't remember how you ran in the middle of your race. But let me tell you something. Everybody remembers how you finish the race. Everybody will remember how you finish the race. Thus, finishing well plays a significant role in how we will be remembered. What I know is that if the Apostle Paul were to have a tombstone with an epitaph on it, he doesn't, but if he did, it could easily be written about him, here lays a man that finished well. Here lies a man that finished well. Paul kept his eye on the prize. He didn't waver in his faith. He failed in ways that we're not aware of probably, but like everyone does. But all in all, Paul walked faithfully until the Lord called him home. Listen to some of his last words to his protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul finished his race well because he lived his life intentionally. This theme comes out in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, chapter, uh, verses 17 through 38, as the apostle Paul is giving what is considered a farewell address to the leaders, to the elders, the pastors, shepherds, overseers of Ephesus. This is the only sermon that we have in the New Testament that's, that's related to, directly to, the church. It's Paul delivering a sermon to the leaders of Ephesus. It's, as I said last week, kind of the first pastor's conference to ever exist in the province of Asia. The Apostle Paul giving these words. He knows he's on his way to Jerusalem, as we talked about. This will complete his third and final missionary journey. And we know that he says here that something awaits him that will very well cost him his life. And that's why he states here that he doesn't account his life of any value nor precious to himself. All he cares about is finishing well, that he would complete the ministry that the Lord had given him at all cost, regardless of the imprisonment and the affliction. That's a good aim, and that ought to be our aim. Here in this uh, series of verses, I find six characteristics from the life of the Apostle Paul that I believe are crucial to a person who desires to finish well. The first characteristic that we find here is endurance. Again, verses 17 through 21. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about this last week, but Paul went through the ringer when he was in Asia. He writes, as, as uh, I mentioned last week, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We know the source of the hardships, the affliction that the Apostle Paul was experiencing were primarily from the Christ-rejecting Jews. They wanted to stamp out the gospel and the Apostle Paul along with it. Everywhere he went, it seemed that he, was, he would have trouble with those Jews who would reject the, the gospel. This was obviously difficult for Paul on many levels, uh, particularly the fact that it grieved him deeply that his countrymen would reject the gospel. Uh, he writes this in and of himself in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. This is Paul right before he comes to Miletus to have this conference. He writes these words. Here's what he says. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, it wrecked Paul when he considered the response of many of the Jews relating to the gospel. It wrecked him deeply. Why? Because he cared for his countrymen. He could relate to where they were because he once was a Christ rejecter, and so were you. I wonder what your heart position is towards your countrymen today, whether they're blue or red liberal or conservative, whether, uh, wherever they might sit, how, what is your heart position towards those in our country, your countrymen? Now, we're to have a heart for all people, but Paul specifically had a massive heart for his people, his kinsmen. He loved them so deeply. I'll tell you this, that it didn't, this was not birthed out of a patriotic heart. This was birthed out of a a gospel-centric heart. This was birthed out of a place where the Holy Spirit had the right position where the fruit of love could come through the Apostle Paul and he had a burden for those whom he loved, for those who, the country that he came from. Where is the burden for those in our country today? Oftentimes I, you know, most often I hear in, in the church complaints about those who are standing against the gospel. Where's the brokenness? for those who are standing against the gospel in our country today. Lord, help us to be broken for the people of our country. That ought to be our heart, folks. We too should wish that we were accursed and be cut off from Christ for the sake of our brothers. When we have a heart for the lost, man, we will live radical lives for the lost. We will be willing to go after those who are estranged from God, who have no hope of eternity. And we will be burdened for them. The Apostle Paul, listen, in light of that, writing in 2 Corinthians, he said these words relating to the afflictions that he was experiencing. He said, verse, uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, I don't have it up here for you, but he said, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things seen, uh, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's heart was on eternity. And he had a heart for his countrymen relating to eternity. He was wrecked for these people. He loved them deeply. How did he respond to the afflictions? Paul ran the race with endurance. He didn't quit or give up relating to the gospel and sharing even with the Jews. He went from town to town to town to every synagogue sharing the gospel with these people because he was walking with endurance relating to his ministry. Ministry requires endurance. The Christian walk requires endurance. If you want to finish well, listen, you're going to need to walk with endurance. That means not giving up when things get hard. You might ask yourself, well, how is it that I get more endurance? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. The Apostle Paul himself gives us the, the answer. He knows. He writes again, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Again, Paul writing this right before he comes to Miletus, after he's experienced all of these things. Paul has a well of endurance because he's experienced much affliction, much suffering. And yet it did not stop him from, as it says here, serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials. He stayed the course. Why did he stay the course? Because he walked with endurance. Not only this, but he was emboldened through his endurance to not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable and teaching the believers in Ephesus in public and from house to house. It was his endurance that kept his heart soft towards the lost. And it tells us that he would preach both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, are you running your race with endurance? Are you running the race with endurance or are you pulling back at the first sign of difficulty relating to the gospel? Oh, they don't want to hear it. I better not share it with anybody. Don't pull back. Don't shrink back. Stay the course. But it will require endurance. But that endurance, God will be faithful to build up in you through the much suffering that you will experience in life. Praise God. The first characteristic to finishing well is endurance. Secondly, we find the Apostle Paul that he was spirit-led in his walk. Look at verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice Luke says, Paul's going to Jerusalem. How is he going? Constrained by the Spirit. 
constrained by the Spirit. The word constrained right here literally means to tie or to bind. It carries the idea of compelling someone to act in a particular manner. This is what it means to be Spirit-led, folks. Listen, all Christians, not just leaders in the church, but all Christians should be Spirit-led Christians. We should be walking in accordance to the Spirit of God. Constrained by the Spirit, not controlled, constrained. The Holy Spirit will never force you to do anything. Hey, uh, he, he, he may lead you in certain areas, but he won't make your feet go there. He may make your life difficult, but he won't force you to make choices that will be Spirit-led choices. There's a partnership with you and the Holy Spirit relating to the path that God has for you, and you have to be willing to go where he leads you to go. That's a trust in God to know that the Spirit is leading you in places that, although may be difficult, they may be uncomfortable, they're beneficial, and there's purpose in them. You might ask this morning, well, how do I know if it's the Spirit or the flesh that is leading me? Well, I'm so... Happy that you asked because I have developed a, a nearly flawless method of determining whether or not you're walking in the spirit or in the flesh. And for two easy installments in 1995, this too can be yours. Here's a free litmus test. And I've said it before. I'll say it again because I think it's true. I think it, I think it works in my life often. You can know that you're spirit-led if what you feel impressed on your heart to do is something that you really don't want to do. And you can know that you're walking in the Spirit if what you feel impressed on your heart to do is something you really want to do. This is typical stuff. I mean, you know, our go-to response generally is the Spirit. What's the easiest path for me? Where is the path that leads me to comfort, ease, and pleasure? That's the one I want. That's generally the flesh. I I have an illustration for you. If you're a parent, you'll get this. When when you go, let's say you're the Holy Spirit and you say, hey, uh, go clean your room and eat your vegetables. Why? Because that's good for you. Generally, the response from kids is, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But what they do want to do is they want to be served and they want to eat ice cream and junk food all day, right? Which is a response from the flesh. The flesh wants to be comfortable. The flesh wants to be pleasured. But the spirit wants us to grow, which requires stretching, folks. Paul was a man that lived in uncomfortable places because that's where growth happens. That's where growth happens. He, doesn't, he tells us, I don't know what's, what's going to happen to me when I get to Jerusalem. All I know is the Holy Spirit has been telling me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Yet, he's going anyway. Yet, he's going anyway. It's because, is it because he doesn't care about his life? Isn't that what he just said? Let's put that in context. What he says is, I don't consider my life of any value in relation to uh, me completing the course. In other words, it's in light of finishing well. Paul doesn't care about his life more than he cares about finishing the course, than finishing his ministry. He wants to do the Father's will. That's what spirit, being spirit-led looks like. It was Jesus, again, spirit-led in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was he looking forward to being crucified on the cross for the wrath of God to be poured out on him? Probably not, but he knew it was the Father's will and that it was the only way for you and I to be reconciled to the Father. 
He did it out of obedience and for love's sake. Paul knows that hardships await him in Jerusalem. And he goes anyway, not kicking and screaming. Not kicking and screaming. He's willfully going in a manner where he can continue on in the ministry which he has received from the Lord, which is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. His aim was to do the will of the Father and to complete his ministry at all costs. Let me ask you this morning, are you more concerned about self-preservation or being faithful? Are you more concerned about, uh, you know, keeping things, uh, you know, at arm's length distance with people than, than being honest with them about where they sit? At some point, it will cost you something to be a Christian, and, and if you're always looking for the easy way out, then you're walking in the flesh. Because I tell you that the Spirit of God leads me to uncomfortable places, but they're beneficial places. Amen. The Spirit of God will lead you into places that, from the fleshly standpoint, look like, man, why would God lead me here? The Spirit led Jesus into the desert. Why would God lead me into this place? Why would God allow me to have uh, this disease where I would have to go to this place for two hours a day and receive this treatment? Have you ever considered that maybe there's somebody there that God wants to speak to? You know, we talked about this. I don't know if I mentioned it in this service, but two weeks ago, one of the pastors from Calvary Chapel Clarksville got in a car accident and he had an aneurysm on his spleen. And they, they life-flighted him to Vanderbilt from Clarksville. And he was there, and uh, they, they were going to do another uh, scan, CT scan on him, to, to find out exactly before they went into surgery what was going on with that. And they went to do the CT scan, and the, the aneurysm was gone. And the nurse that had, had received him in from Clarksville and had been caring for him the last couple days, she came into the room and she said, no, I know it was, what's going on. They're not taking you into surgery yet, huh? They're not going to do it. And he, he said, no, because there's no aneurysm. And then he was able to use that as a, testi- a moment to testify of the gospel of grace, of who the, his father is in heaven and how he had healed him of these things. And so I say all that to say, listen, the spirit of God leads us into to, to difficult places, into places of hardship, but there's benefit in it. And there's a reason for it. That's what Paul was saying. Man, I don't consider any any of these things, these momentary afflictions, anything in comparison to where I'm going. I know that God has benefit. There's benefit in all of my suffering, and that's why I can, can, you know, handle it like a good soldier, like he told Timothy. Are you walking in obedience to the Spirit today? Are you fulfilling the ministry that God has given you? Do you know what your ministry is? It's the same one Paul has, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's our ministry. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. And what will stop you from delivering the gospel of the grace of God is a mentality of self-preservation. Just me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity that we care about ourselves more than we care about other people. God, would he change our hearts to have a passion for people who are lost, people who are, you know, deceived, people who are led astray, that God would help us to desire to help them know because he's given you that ministry. We have been given the ministry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, of what? Reconciliation. Man, that's amazing. 
that we get to be in the moment where God is reconciling man to God through his son and you get to be the voice box. That is an amazing ministry. The apostle Paul had received from the Lord and you too have received from the Lord. We all step into that ministry. We're all called to this ministry. Paul completed his ministry. We know that. He completed it and he continued to go to places that were difficult. He continued to minister to people that didn't like him. And he continued to win souls for Jesus even in the midst of all of that. He finished his course well. He was here to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The word gospel, you know what it means, right? Good news. You know why it's good news? Because it doesn't have anything to do with you. In other words, it would be horrible news. It wouldn't be the gospel if it were the gospel of the works of man, right? That would be horrible for us. Thank God that it's the gospel of the grace of God. Thank God it's the gospel of the grace of God. That word grace, I love the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus Christ took your place on the cross. He traded his robe of righteousness for your filthy rags. And he gave you eternity and an inheritance through his blood. It is the gospel of the grace. None of us deserve any of that. And yet, because God is a God of grace, he's a God of love, he would send his son. Here we are, just a week away from Christmas, where we will celebrate the giving of the Son of God, the greatest gift to ever be given in, the, in human history. God sending his son into the world to be the reconciled, the redeemer of mankind. It's a gift. We didn't do anything to get it. This Christmas, you're going to give your family members, those people you love, you're going to give them gifts and you're going to be like, now you deserve this. That's not a gift, is it? That's called a reward. If you give a gift it has nothing to do with them. It's your heart to theirs. Here. All they have to do is receive it. All they got to do is receive it. And God sent his son that way. Packaged him up. Bundled him up in the flesh. That he would live sinless and die sacrificially so that we could be saved. It is the gospel of the grace of God. And you, my friends, have the privilege to be the testifiers of that gospel to those who don't know God. It is the greatest privilege in the world to stand before somebody who doesn't know the Lord, who's estranged from God, who's going to hell, and offer them grace. To say God wants to save you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he sent his son for you. Man, this is a privilege that we have, you know, that we should consider uh, it a privilege. And I'll tell you this, the spirit of God will lead you to places to complete your ministry. He will lead you to people that need to hear the gospel, but you have to partner with them. You have to be willing to say the words. He won't open your mouth. He doesn't just come out and blah, 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 blah. He will allow you to walk away from that opportunity. And you know who misses out? You do. He'll send somebody else because God is faithful. And there's not a single person in the world that's going to stand before God and go, I didn't get an opportunity he gives everybody multiple opportunities. Listen, you have to be spirit-led if you want to fulfill your ministry, Christian. He's got things for you to do that he's created beforehand that you should walk in. But you have to walk the path that he puts you on. 
And you have to be willing to go where he calls you to go. And even in those moments of difficulty and suffering, that you would be willing to, to, to get beyond yourself and to think of other people in that moment. Paul was a spirit-led man. Thirdly, we find that he was scripture-centric. Look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, Paul, here, he, he, he has a peculiar certainty. It says here, as Luke is writing, relating to his return to Ephesus, he said that they're not going to see his face again. He's pretty certain about that. You're not going to see me again. Now, uh, some suggest that, that Paul did go back to Ephesus after this. It's really unclear what happens to him. What we know is he goes to Jerusalem. He is arrested. Then he appeals to Rome, and he's delivered in Rome. He stays in Rome for two years, imprisoned. And then he's apparently released. Here are his intentions relating, uh, because we know this, because he wrote letters, the, the prison uh, epistles, while he was in Rome. And he wrote, he, one of his intentions was to go to Philippi. He mentions that in the, in the letter to the Philipp Philippians. He also mentions that he's going to Colossae. And he writes in the book of Philemon, prepare a place for me. So we know that he desires to go to the, the uh, Philippi and to Colossae, whether he returned to, to uh, Ephesus or not, we don't know. A lot of scholars believe that he went to Spain and shared the gospel there. What we know is that he was arrested again in his second imprisonment, which would lead to his martyrdom by the hand of Caesar Nero in, uh, in and around somewhere around 68 AD. At this point, Paul believes with all his heart that they will never see his face again. I point that out because I think what he has to say next for the rest of what he's going to say to them is probably the most important things that he has to say. If you know you're not going to see somebody ever again and you kind of have that sediment in your heart, you're not going to waste your words. You're not going to say things that are trivial. You're going to say the most important things that you want them to know. And so Paul Paul tells them here, he said, and this is his really setting the precedence for these elders, that they would walk in his footsteps, that they would take on the, the same responsibilities that, that he himself has taken on. And I don't think it's just for elders and pastors, but I believe that these are instructions for all Christians that we should do this stuff. Look, look at what he says. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all blood. Now, the emphasis really isn't on the fact that he's saying I'm innocent, but why he's innocent. The emphasis is on the idea that he's innocent. Why? Because he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul went everywhere he went sharing the truth with people. He didn't hold the truth back because he was worried about offending people. He shared the whole counsel of God, and therefore, because he did that, he's saying, I'm innocent. My, my conscience is clear. Like, I have told you the truth. And I wonder this morning if your conscience wouldn't just give you a check and say, what about that person that I put in your path? Did you tell him the truth? We want to have a clear conscience, and the way that we get, have a clear conscience is we speak the truth. Paul, specifically here, says, I have... I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. What is the whole counsel of God? What is he referring to? 
Well, primarily, in this time, the only thing that they had was the Old Testament. This is fascinating to think that the Apostle Paul declared the whole counsel of God, which would have been the Old Testament, in a relationship to what it says about Jesus Christ. There, at the school of Tyrannus for two years, he would preach about how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these prophetic words. Uh, for uh, you and I, it's the 66 books we have in our lap or on our tablet or whatever. That's the whole counsel of God. The, the New Testament hadn't been written. It was being written. And no doubt he was revealing revelation, but he went from Genesis through the Old Testament just, just sharing about how Jesus was the, the, the promised Messiah. Listen, if you're one of those uh, believers who says, I, I, don't, I don't read the Old Testament, do you know that most of the, Old uh, most of the New Testament is a quoting the Old Testament? You should probably know the Old Testament. Like, and it's so amazing as you're going through it as a believer, understanding that Jesus Christ has come, as you read through this, you find all of these depictions of Christ through the Old Testament. Man, I read through the Bible, and when I'm done, I start back over. And I read through it, and I start back over. Man, right now, I'm in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. When I get up in the morning, I need two cups of coffee before I start reading Leviticus. But I'll tell you what. There's amazing messages, even in the book of Leviticus. Amazing messages about Jesus. But you got to do the work. you got to be willing to read it. Paul gave the whole counsel of God. Uh, you know, he was a scripture-centric man. In other words, he didn't deliver his words. He delivered the word. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're not, we're not called to go out and deliver our opinions about things. We're called to deliver the scripture, the whole counsel of God to people. It's the Bible. It's the word of God that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, if I stood here for 45 minutes and just spoke about stories about my life and stuff, you know what? That, that, that might make some impact on your life for like 30 seconds. But it's not going to be sustainable. You might feel good for a moment when you leave, but guess what? That's where it will end. But the word of God is eternal. It, 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 it never returns void. When you hear it, it, there's something about that from a spiritual standpoint that it is doing something in you, even though you don't even know it. The word of God. And so we, we, we need to be scripture-centric preachers and teachers and Christians. The scripture should be the center of our of our gathering and should be on the forefronts of our minds always. What does the Bible say about these things? You know, that's what makes Calvary Chapel unique, which seems strange to me that it would be, that in Christianity it would be unique that somebody would teach the Bible. I was blown away when I taught the book of Revelation recently and somebody came up to me and said, thank you for teaching the book of Revelation. I'm thinking like, it's the Bible. Why would you thank me for teaching the Bible? Because there are many places where the Bible is taught about, not taught. We teach the Bible. We don't teach about the Bible. There are many people who will, their sermons are, you know, I'll read a scripture and launch into some subject that has no relation to what they just said, but they read a scripture, so it's a sermon. You know, we don't, we don't want to be those kind of people. The Apostle Paul wasn't that kind of a person. He was scripture-centric. He, he allowed the scriptures to speak. And that's how, listen, God has given you a script. 
He doesn't need your help. He can write pretty good. It's pretty impactful. Just stick to the script. Just say what he tells you to say. Don't try and, uh, you know, jazz it up or, or anything like that. I say to you, as Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. Always be, get, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you through the word of God. Through the word of God. Preach the word. Well, this brings us to our fourth characteristic of a person who finishes well. They're sober-minded. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish each one of you with tears. The phrase here, pay careful attention. It means to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and be ready to respond appropriately. Peter calls it to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to be circumspect. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you know the verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are to be sober-minded people, to be watchful. We're watchmen on a wall, folks. Not only are we... What does he tell us to do? Be watchful about two specific things. Be watchful about yourself and be watchful about the flock of God. He's telling these, these guys to be watchful about their own personal lives and their lifestyle. And that applies to every person. Be watchful, be circumspect, be careful about the way that you live your life. You know why? Because people are watching. You might say, well, I'm not leading anybody. Oh, you are. You're leading people, and people are observing your lifestyle. What are they seeing? Paul told these leaders here in Ephesus, be careful about your lifestyle. Do you know that that is actually part of the responsibilities or the characteristics of a person that is qualified to be an elder in the church? One of them is to be sober-minded, to be careful, to be mindful, to be watchful, the other is that they would live their life above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean perfect because nobody's perfect. If, if it were perfection, then zero qualification. Nobody qualifies for that. But what he means is that you're, you're doing your best to not give anybody a reason to condemn you, that you're watching the way that you live. You know, there's, there's plenty of what we would say Christian freedoms that, you know, we can walk in. But the question is, how does that make us look? In other words, I choose not to drink alcohol. It's not because I can't handle it. I can handle it. I choose to do it because I don't want to set a precedence. I don't want to have any perception that might stumble somebody else. That's what it means to be above reproach. Like, even in your freedoms, you choose to be reserved, to be conservative, because of how it might affect other people. Your, your, your focus is on other people. It's not on yourself and what you, oh man, I can't do this. Who cares? 
That's what he means. Like, and we should adopt that into our own lives as we live our lives as Christians in the world. Being careful. Hey, how, what's the perception of this? Not because we care about what people think about us, but because we care about what people think about our character and about our testimony. Right? And so we should be careful about the way we live our lives. And Paul goes on to tell them, but also you're responsible over the flock of God. And, and yeah, the leaders, the elders, the pastors, the overseers of a church are responsible for the flock of God. But I would say there is a sense in which every Christian is responsible for the flock of God. Why does he say confess your sins one to another? I mean, every one of us has a responsibility to kind of keep watch. You know, when you're in conversations with people and you're hearing things, you know, you, you're, you're responsible as part of the body of Christ to perceive those things, to hear those things. And then if they're, if they're off, you're responsible to address them. And, and you need to know the word of God in order to do that. But Paul tells these guys, as pastors, as leaders in the church, you need to watch over the flock of God. You need to teach the, the flock of God so they can also help in that regard. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, you know, this is our mission statement. This is where our mission statement is derived from, Ephesians 4, 12. It says that, that, that we're responsible to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, by the waves and carried away about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So part of the way that the pastors and the elders and the leaders of the church watch over the flock of God is they teach them the word of God. And now, you have, now you're equipped. You're ready. You, 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 can, you can call out this human cunning, this craftiness, these deceitful schemes. Paul tells them that that stuff is coming. He tells this church, it's a warning to them, these things are coming. What's interesting is the responsibility and how the, he, he, he words this to them. He, he tells them, by the way, the flock... Uh, it was obtained by the blood of Jesus Christ. So just remember that. Like that puts a different weight on the responsibility when it comes to oversight in the church. You think like, you know, it's one thing if it's just, it's just you and I and, you know, I have some general oversight. But he says, by the way, Jesus paid for them. It was the blood of Christ. And it just kind of puts it in a different category in my mind. Like that's super serious. I need to take this seriously. Because Paul says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men twisted things, will, men, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jesus spoke about this as well. He said, there will be false teachers coming. You can expect it. Paul leaving these men in charge, he said, watch out for the wolves that will come from the outside, the Judaizers, the Jesus plus people, those people who will try and wreck the gospel. They're everywhere, and they'll make their way into the church. You guys are responsible for taking charge and watching out for these things. You know, we've had people here in our fellowship who have come off the street to come in here, and what they always do 
what they always do is they sort of make, get to know some people in the church. They, get them, they start to isolate the sheep. They get them by themselves, and then they devour them with their deceitful schemes, their doctrines. That's what they do. We watch, and we're, 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 we call ourselves sheepdogs. Because we need to be watchful for that. Because it's, hap- it's happened here. We've had to tell people, hey, you're no longer welcome here. We had a, a group called the 12 Tribes from Pulaski that came up here trying to recruit. And it was literally, it's a, it's a cult. Kind of the Hebrew roots, but kind of strange. They live together, communal living. They came here looking for young women. We told them, you're no longer welcome here. Uh, you know, I'll have a conversation with you, but not here and not amongst our people. Anytime you want to know the gospel or you want to get out of that, give me a call. But you're no longer welcome to come here if that is your purpose. We take this seriously. And it's happened multiple times. Not only do you have to worry about people coming outside the church, but he, Paul says you also have to be willing, be, be mindful of those who are within the church who have an agenda. If Satan can't destroy you from the outside in, he'll destroy you from the inside out. And so he'll plant people in churches, and their whole purpose is just to kind of undermine the, the, the church, the, the leadership and such, and, and just to, uh, he says, they will be raised up and they will speak twisted things. And so we need to be careful of that. And, and if you're ever in a conversation with somebody like that, you know, and you hear something that's off, you need to address it. Hey, what do you mean by that? You know, we, we, we live in a culture where it's, it's politically incorrect to address stuff. That doesn't play here. That does not play in the church. We have a responsibility to address those things if they come up. And so you have a responsibility to do that. And uh, certainly the leadership would love to know about that as well because we're trying to build unity in the body of Christ. And the enemy wants to destroy. He wants to kill, still and destroy. He wants to... He wants to tear down what God is doing. So you need to be aware of these things. One of the ways that the enemy does that is it's from the beginning. His ploy is the same. It's through the word of God. The twisting of scripture, uh, you know, the wolves come in with the legalistic, you know, Jesus plus stuff. That's how he started and that's how he'll finish. It will always be that way. Did God really say Did God really say that is the ploy of the enemy? And we know that. That's why we need to be scripture-centric people. We need to understand the Bible so that we can make a stand for those things. Paul goes on and he says, therefore, be alert. Pay attention. Don't fall asleep on your watch. Pay attention. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul was a man that was sober-minded, paying careful attention to himself and to the flock that he was to care over. And it, it's evidence of his love for these people and the fact that it tells us here that he admonished everyone with tears. It's one thing to admonish somebody. It's a whole different level to admonish somebody with tears. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have a heart connection. You really genuinely care about that person. You ever been uh, witnessing to somebody and they're just not having it? They're like, man, you know, or a Christian who's, who's you know, in, in, often off the track and they, they think they're okay there. And you're trying to help them come back on the path and they're not hearing it. Doesn't it grieve your soul? Grieve your heart to tears? That's the idea. Like, he cares so much about these people. 
that he's correcting them, he's exhorting them, he's admonishing them with tears. Well, not only will a person who finishes well be sober-minded, but they will be sacrificial. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build up, build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covered no one's, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands uh, ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul goes on to commend these believers to God and to the word of his grace. Why is he commending them to the Lord? Because his job is over. In a sense, he is... He has given them the whole counsel of God. He's exhorted them. He's warned them. He's trained them. He is now, the only thing that he can do for them now is commend them to God. The Lord be with you. You know, I, I, I can't walk this walk with you from here on out, but I commend you to the Lord. He'll be with you. You don't have to worry about it. It's really the idea is to make sure that you don't become codependent on a person. Right? But a good leader will always point you back to Jesus. They will never make you codependent on them. Well, just give me a call and I'll help you out. You know what your first response to somebody when, when, when you're developing that relationship and you're trying to disciple them and help them to walk with Jesus? you got to point them to Jesus. In other words, when they call you up and say, oh man, this is what's going on, your first comment to them should be, have you talked to the Lord about this? Because we're not the first step. He is. And then he leads and guides and directs us. We're dependent on him. If, if, you, if your first step is to a person, man, you're going to be sorely let down. And then you're going to get hurt by the church because somebody didn't respond the way you wanted to respond because you were following the wrong person. you got to follow Jesus. And if you're discipling people, your first response should be go to Jesus. You know, if I find people continually coming to me, I, I literally at some point will say, I, I can't meet with you because I feel that you're becoming codependent on me. And that isn't biblical and that's not right. You gotta look to Jesus. You gotta look to the Lord. He's the only one that can help you. Paul delivers these guys, literally. I commend you to the Lord. He's gonna be with you in every circumstance and situation. You don't need me. You need the Lord and you got him. And so Paul delivers them to the Lord because he's able to build them up and give them the inheritance uh, that they, they receive through Christ as they're sanctified, set apart for his glory. The, only the Lord can do that. Uh, the Lord told me a long time ago, I'm nobody's savior. Nobody's savior. There's only one savior and his name is Jesus. Paul moves on here and he mentions this theme of being sacrificial in his lifestyle. And I think that's part of what it, in order to finish well, what's required to be sacrificial. And it's interesting that Paul mentions these words from Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is not written in any of the gospels. We don't find a reference to Jesus saying any of this. And although it's not explicitly written in that way, the sentiment is certainly in the gospels. This is certainly the idea that, they're, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul took that to heart. That's the way he lived his life. And when he was in and amongst those in Ephesus for three years, 
He said, I didn't ask you guys for anything. I didn't covet your silver, your gold, your possessions. I didn't look to you to provide for me because he knows who his provider is. It's the Lord. And there was something that God was doing in his midst that God said, I need you to provide for yourself in this place. So you go get a job and you take care of your necessities in and of yourself. And that probably opened up doors for Paul to minister to people as he got to know people, you know, in his daily routine. Sometimes we think that, oh, man, if I could only be in full-time ministry. Well, you are in full-time ministry. What are you talking about? Everywhere you go, you're in full-time ministry already. You might not get paid for it, but you're in ministry. Do you know that's, the, that's not a determiner of whether you're called or not, whether you get paid? That's not a determiner of whether you're called to ministry. And if it is, you're a hireling. If it's the determiner, if I'm going to be faithful to what God, uh, you know, is call, if I'm going to do the job that I believe I'm supposed to do because I get paid for it, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. Paul did it because he was called. And there were times where he was taken care of, but there were times where he wasn't, and he was willing to step in. Why? Even to work bivocationally. Why? Because he was called. Because he was called. I was, it's interesting, uh, I was on a board uh, years ago, and uh, the, the, of this church, and this church was in having some financial trouble. And they had a couple pastors on staff, and as the board we met, and we talked about what, what, is, what needs to happen here. You know, and we prayed through it diligently, and we felt like the Lord was saying, we have to let one of these guys go. We have to let one of the pastors go. We have to tell them that we have to, we have to move them off of paid staff, and they have to, be, they have to volunteer. And I'll never forget one of the elders or one of the board members of the church there. Didn't, didn't, I wasn't part of the church. He wasn't part of the church. But he said something, something that I'll never forget. And, and he said, so we decided, you know, who, who it was that we were going to break the news to. And, and he said, now we're going to see if, if this person is convinced of their call or not. Because they're not going to get paid for this, but they will be bivocational. Are they going to be convinced, number one, of their call? And are they going to be convinced that they're called to hear? Right? Because those are, those are two, two different callings. And, and so, you know, it, it just really made an impact on me as a young person in ministry to really be mindful about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, what's the motivation? Am I, am I doing this because I'm getting paid to do it? Or am I doing this because I'm called to do it? Because if I'm called to do it, I'll do it anyway. I might not be able to do it to the same level, but I will stay the course in my ministry that God has called me to. And that was the Apostle Paul. It, he wasn't a hireling. He was faithful to the ministry. There are all kinds of circumstances surrounding all this, so I don't want to, it's not cut and dry, but I'm just saying that there is the reality that if God has called you, you will do whatever you're called, whatever you're called to do. And if that means having a job and taking care of yourself while completing your ministry, then that's what you will do because you're called. Paul was called to the ministry, and thus he was sacrificial to fulfill his ministry. And that's what's required, folks. If you want to walk with the Lord, if you want to finish your race well, you're going to have to be sacrificial in your ministry. And, you know, that's going to involve time and talents, and all kinds of other things. But it's the only way to be faithful.
to be sacrificial. This leads us to our final characteristic, which is to be courageous. Look at verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed uh, with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You know, ministry is emotional because you, you get deep connections with people. And uh, isn't it sad when people move or they, they leave, uh, you know, and, and you're used to having that fellowship with them, seeing them on Sundays and home fellowships or whatever, you know, and you're, you're just building these deep relationships, getting coffee with people, and you're like, oh, that's all going to change. For these guys, they weren't going to see him again, the Apostle Paul. That was the mindset. So this is an emotional moment, I think. Like, and I love that, that they're, 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 the way that they end their gathering is that they just go and pray for each other. The Apostle Paul kneeling down, praying with them all, and they also praying over him, embracing him, kissing him. You can see the emotion involved in this. Could you imagine the heartfelt prayers that were prayed? What do you, so, what do you suppose the theme of those prayers were? Knowing that Paul, where Paul was headed, but also that Paul setting the precedence for them in the same way that they're to, they're to live their lives in the same way. I'm sure they were prayers like, God, help us finish well. God, help us stay the course. Lord, be with Paul. Yeah, protect him, but take him where you got to take him, Lord. I mean, these, are, these are courageous prayers, folks, where we are praying God's will to be done. That takes courage to pray those kind of prayers. Lord, your will be done. What you're saying is, I don't care what, what, it, what, it, what happens to me in, in the same regard as like Paul. I consider my life of no value, Lord. Do what you want to do. Have your way. They were pray, probably praying prayers like that. Lord, do it. Do whatever you need to do to get glory, God. Your will be done. And it tells us that they were they were sorrowful because they had relationship. And you should be building deep relationships with the people that you go to church with. You should be building deep relationships and unity in Christ with these people in and amongst you. And yeah, not, not necessarily in these four walls, but the church. You know, and it should happen here too because these are, this is, these are people you're fellowshipping with. You know, it shouldn't, shouldn't be just a bypasser kind of situation. I'm a firm believer God calls people to a church which means if he calls us to a church, that means it's really not up to us whether we go there or not. It's his call. And why would he do that? I think it's because he uses giftings of people in different ways. And maybe, uh, you know, everybody needs an armpit in the, in the body of Christ. And maybe that's you here this morning. I don't know. <laughs> but I think he does. And, and he calls us to a body of Christ. And I don't think it's a preferential thing. I think it's a call of God. God, where do you want me? When people come here and they visit Calvary Chapel, I always tell them, hey, we'll be praying that God, God takes you where he calls you because that's where, you, that's where you're going to be beneficial to the body of Christ. That's where the Lord's going to use you because they have a missing you there, whatever part of the body that you play. And, and, and so anyway, I don't know why I said that, but here's the interesting thing about this. It was they prayed courageous prayers. But here's the most courageous thing that happened in the midst of all of this is Paul got on the ship. Paul got on the ship. 
even though he knew what he was facing, in the sense of what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him, there's much affliction and much suffering, much imprisonment coming, Paul. He got on the ship anyway. Are you on the ship that God's called you to? It takes courage to get on that ship. And it takes courage because it may lead you into uncomfortable places. But he has a purpose in it. And what I'll tell you is, you'll never finish well if you don't walk in courage. If you're not courageous in your walk with the Lord. And again, this isn't courage within ourselves. This is a courage that comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul got on the boat because he knew he was supposed to get on the boat. And he got over himself and he did what God was calling him to do. And that's what it takes to finish well. I'm convinced that Paul's epitaph could easily be written in the sense that it would say, here lies a man who finished well. The question for you this morning is, what will be on your epitaph? What will people say about you? Here's something even more important to think about. What will you hear when you stand before the Lord? Will you hear silence? Or will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest? God doesn't just say nice things to people if they're not true. He's honest. And if you make it to heaven and you weren't faithful, but it's by the blood of Christ that we go to heaven, you might not hear those words. But man, if you're fighting to do the, the will of the Lord in your life, I'm certain that you'll hear those words because he's a God of grace. And he wants to use you and he has a plan to, to use you massively. But you have to do the work. You have to be willing to step, step on, uh, on the boat and go the route that he's calling you to go. We Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.